Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. I want to begin this episode with a simple request. Just breathe. <sighs> Notice your breath and ponder it. How did it come to be that you could inhale a lungful of air that could sustain you? What cosmic forces and planetary processes conspired to bring us an atmosphere rich in oxygen, a breathable sheath of gas that coats this mostly rocky world? These profound questions were the topic of a workshop that I attended this past May titled Oxygen in Planetary Biospheres. And this episode of Strange New Worlds is dedicated to recapping my time at the Oxygen Workshop. The first thing that needs to be said about the Oxygen Workshop is that it was held at the historic and remote Green Bank Observatory in West Virginia. Green Bank Observatory is the site of numerous radio telescopes that are continuously working to scan the skies for astrophysical, astrochemical, and potentially astrobiological phenomena. Radio is the natural wavelength of light for scanning the skies for certain chemicals that you might find in nebulae, for instance. But it's also one of the most obvious wavelengths to start looking for signs of extraterrestrial civilizations. About 20% of the Green Bank Telescope's time, that's the largest telescope at the Green Bank Observatory, is dedicated to SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Now, because these telescopes observe the universe at radio wavelengths, to cut down on contamination from earthly radio sources, the entire site is a radio quiet zone. Internet was extremely limited, and cell surface was virtually non-existent, meaning this conference doubled as a very peaceful retreat. I actually enjoyed going off the grid for a while. It allowed me to think and write and finish my talk at the very last moment. <laughs> As part of the conference, the Green Bank astronomers organized tours of the historic telescopes for all of the attendees, including an up-close-and-personal tour of that most impressive Green Bank Telescope, which is the world's largest fully steerable radio telescope, which we were able to climb up and touch the dish of. Now, I've always found telescopes to be somewhat romantic sights. I just love the feeling of being dwarfed by these giant metallic contraptions that bring us new knowledge about our place in the universe. These magnificent devices are our eyes and ears on the heavens, the primary way that we come to know what's out there beyond our pale blue dot. And insofar as we are a natural consequence of the universe and 
Our telescopes are a natural consequence of us. These devices represent the way that the universe has come to know itself. Isn't that amazing that one small, tiny little corner of the universe, the one that we call planet Earth, gave rise to the right kind of chemical complexity, which developed into something we call life, which evolved brains, which developed technology, a small fraction of which was built for no other reason than to peer into the most distant of distances and actually try to understand the grandeur of all that's out there and all that caused it to eventually come to be. I guess I'm biased, but there's nothing more romantic than that. The Green Bank Observatory telescopes themselves were locked not just in this radio quiet zone, but also a no electronics zone, which meant that we had to surrender our cameras and phones before approaching them. But the Green Bank astronomers knew that we'd want to take pictures of ourselves atop the great GBT, so they actually went out of their way and supplied us with an arsenal of disposable film cameras. Probably the most memorable thing about this entire conference was observing some of the grad students being completely befuddled by these tiny plastic boxes, which we elder statesmen had to teach them how to use. You see, it's got film inside of it. And every time you take a photo, you gotta crank the little dial forward to advance the film before you can take another shot. <laughs> I guess kids these days literally grew up with a smartphone in their hands. I really am getting old, aren't I? One of the most engaging talks at the Oxygen Workshop was by self-proclaimed astrovirologist Ken Stedman from Portland State University. Professor Stedman is a virus evangelist. Earth, he told us, is a viral world. 10 to the power 31 virions make their home on our planet. And even though they are microscopic creatures, only about 20 nanometers in size, they are so abundant that if you lined all of them up end to end, they would stretch for 20 million light years. Now, our Milky Way galaxy is only 100,000 light years across, so that's 200 galactic diameters worth of viruses on our planet alone. We normally think of viruses as dangerous beings, parasites that hijack cells to produce more of themselves, killing the cell in the process. That's not untrue. The COVID-19 pandemic is a heartbreaking example of the destruction and disruption that viruses can cause. But reality is often much more complicated than a purely black and white picture. When you zoom out to see the big picture, viruses might actually play an essential role at maintaining ecosystem balance. 
Ken told us that harmful algal blooms, that's when photosynthetic life forms in seawater or lakes, grow out of control, turning the water a sickly opaque green and producing toxins that kill fish and other wildlife, those algal blooms are almost always ended by viral infections. Furthermore, viruses sometimes infect their hosts with genes that actually promote the host's survival. That might seem odd at first, but it actually makes a lot of sense for the virus. If it can give its host a boost in productivity, and potentially a leg up over its competitors, it can ensure that its host acquires the resources that it needs to replicate itself and the virus effectively. So a lot of viruses carry genes that enhance their host's metabolisms, including genes for photosynthesis. These photosynthetic genes were likely stolen from some ancient photosynthetic cell and now hop to new cells through viral vectors. When one of these virions infects its host, the host will transcribe its genes, producing photosynthetic factories that allow cells to perform photosynthesis and thrive under conditions that they otherwise couldn't have before. It's kind of like how Spider-Man got his spidey powers, except instead of gaining the ability to swing from skyscraper to skyscraper, he got the ability to simply bask in the sun and make sugar from water and carbon dioxide. Now, as we all know, a part of this photosynthetic process is that oxygen is produced as a waste product. Oxygenic photosynthesis is the process by which life oxygenates our atmosphere. And Ken told us that virus infections donating photosynthetic genes are responsible for making about 5% of all of the oxygen on Earth. That means that every 20th breath you take is a direct result of viruses. Think about that. If you want to learn more about viruses in extraterrestrial settings, check out episode 5 of my Europa Watch miniseries, where I interview Adriana Gomez Buckley about the potential for viruses on Jupiter's moon Europa. You can find that and tons more right here in your Strange New Worlds podcast feed. Another amazing interaction I had at the Oxygen Workshop was with an interdisciplinary artist named Daniela De Paulis. Daniela is currently an artist in residence at the Green Bank Observatory and told us about a truly fascinating project of hers called a sign in space. The idea of a sign in space is to simulate the process of receiving decoding, and interpreting an alien radio signal. In other words, it's a first contact test. Together with two colleagues, one an astronomer, the other a computer programmer, artist DePaulis crafted a cryptic message that was beamed to Earth from the European Space Agency's Trace Gas Orbiter, which is a spacecraft that is currently orbiting Mars. Now, back here on the ground, the Green Bank Observatory, with all of its radio telescopes, along with the Allen Telescope Array in Northern California and the Medicina Radio Observatory in Italy, received that transmission. 
as we speak, experts and lay people all around the globe are setting to work trying to decipher this message. Remember, only three people in the entire world know the true answer, what the code says and what it means. Everyone else is in the dark, attempting to find patterns in the data and divine meaning from those zeros and ones. What's mind-boggling to me about this project is that decoding an alien message is not just a technical issue, but also a deeply linguistic and cultural one, too. Not only do you need the scientific know-how to figure out how to read the content of the message, you also need to interpret it. And when it comes to that interpretation, we are incredibly biased by the narrow slice of experience that we call humanity. Our language, our culture, our way of thinking and perceiving, we view anything that an alien might send through incredibly tinted goggles. And if aliens have a different way of experiencing the universe from us, it may be very challenging, if not impossible, to truly figure out the correct meaning behind their words, if they're even words at all. This reminds me of the Star Trek TNG episode, Darmok, where Captain Picard gets stranded on an alien planet with a Tamarian captain who speaks only in metaphors and allegories. You see, Tamarian language is so steeped in their own historical culture that they describe present situations and feelings and actions through reference to things that happened in their past. Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra means nothing to Jean-Luc Picard, who has no idea who Darmok or Jalad is or where Tanagra is. But to the Tamarian captain who knows the stories of his people, those words perfectly describe the pickle that he and Picard find themselves in. Deciphering an alien transmission may be simple in comparison to interpreting its meaning. We can all hear Temba, his arms wide. We even know what those individual words mean. But altogether, does Temba, his arms wide, convey friendship or a threat or a gesture of pure indifference? Of course, when it comes to a sign in space, we can be somewhat hopeful that the cultural gulf isn't insurmountable. Despite all of the author's efforts to de-anthropocentrize the signal, it was, after all, a trio of human beings that crafted this particular message. No matter the outcome, whether or not somebody on Earth actually figures out what the message means, a sign in space really speaks to the need for the astrobiology community to embrace not just every single kind of science imaginable, but also artists, linguists, cryptographers, historians, and more. For finding our place in the universe is not just a scientific project. It's a human endeavor. 
If you want to learn more about a sign in space, I've put a link in the show notes to an excellent Scientific American article about the project, written by science journalist and occasional Strange New Worlds podcast guest, Dr. Shee-N Kim. And I've also put a link to the official Assign in Space website in case you're interested in trying to decode the message yourself. To all of those out there trying to figure out what it means, good luck. That wraps up this short solo episode of Strange New Worlds. Until next time, take care, stay curious, and I'll see you out.